VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, February the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams will be the voice on the other end of the line when you pick up the phone, give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I think driving conditions have probably improved since I made my way here to the studio this morning. But that light, fluffy snow on top of some ice might make for a couple of treacherous spots, especially on the side streets. And look, nobody likes to clear the snow and the ice off their car. Nobody. It's not a pastime that anybody looks forward to, but please do indeed do it so you can be seen and see what's around you as you traverse your way to wherever you're heading this morning. A little break at the pumps, gas down 8.7 cents per liter, no change in other fuels. Lots of delayed openings on the Avalon Peninsula, with the exception of the metro area. So if you're home and having a chance to tune into the show, please do consider giving us a shout. Uh, I want to say congratulations. Good luck to Hudson White. He's a St. John's native. He's a baseball pitcher. He's committed to play varsity ball at the University of Illinois with the Fighting Illini in the NCAA Division I ranks. So congratulations to Hudson. That's pretty exciting stuff. And this is pretty exciting. Talk about an offensive outburst for the ages. It was today, or this date, 1976, that Toronto center Daryl Sittler set an NHL record for 10 points in one game. Six goals, four assists, and an 11-4 victory over the Boston Bruins at Maple Leaf Gardens. That season, Sittler went on to score 100 points on the nose. So that was his first of 200-point seasons. He scored 117 a couple of years later, but he had a tenth of his scoring for the season one night on the 7th of February, 76. All right. And also, this is a big one for music fans. For the first time landing on American shores, Beatlemania and the Beatles landed at in New York. I believe it was at... Uh, LaGuardia, but anyway, they landed in New York. There was the first tour of the United States for the Beatles and part of the British invasion. There was a filmmaker named Albert Mills, Mills, I believe is how you pronounce it. He had unprecedented access to the band. Some of the moving footage is absolutely incredible. And you see some of those first concerts that the Beatles played? I don't think anyone in the stands actually heard any of the music over the shrill and the shrieks and the yells and the screams coming from those in the audience. But Beatlemania makes its way to North America this date, 59 years ago in 1964. The tale of two different snowmobile stories. So it's a pretty cool story where there was, uh, I think, a group of six uh, snowmobilers out traversing between Cormac and Gross Morton in the back country, came upon a moose stranded in this massive hole and did the right thing. They dug out a ramp so that the moose, who was obviously in not very good condition, was able to scramble out of the hole and very likely save the moose's life. And then please do indeed know exactly where you're heading and any risky spots that have been identified by your fellow snowmobilers and the community out. Uh, Perry's Cove. A fellow went through the pond, through the ice, and perished, so be careful out there, please. All right, today's a big day in the world of healthcare. So the premiers are meeting with the prime minister today, and obviously there's a lot on the line. So it's anticipated that the federal government will be offering some sort of 10-year plan for healthcare funding. The first one at the top of the agenda is the Canadian or the Canada health transfer. 
CHT. So right now it stands at about 22% of provincial health care spending. The premiers would like to see it at 35%. That's a whopping big increase because the federal transfer dollar is already quite substantial. So they're asking for uh, another, I think it's almost $40 billion worth of transfer dollars. What's also going to be contentious, I think, is if the federal government is going to have any strings attached, any conditions set forward. Now, there was indeed that type of arrangement the last time we negotiated a bilateral deal. The money was to be spent on long-term care and on mental health care. So, you know, Premier Legault in Quebec, of course, which is always the way for Quebecois premiers, is that any strings attached will be fully rejected by Legault. Premier Fury talking about, you know, it has to be tailor-made for this province, and I do think it's larger than just dollars and cents. So a 10-year plan is interesting to begin with. You know, I don't think there's any, there's, uh, it's no coincidence that it sort of jibes with the 10-year health accord plan that this province is working towards. But here's something where I think a bit of federal guidance would be helpful. I've never for the life of me understood why there is a big difference between uh, being accredited and licensed to be a healthcare professionals in Ontario versus BC, Alberta, Newfoundland, Labrador, or wherever else. If you're up to snuff to be a doctor, an LPN, nurse practitioner, social worker, pharmacist, whatever the case may be, in one province, that should absolutely be enough to work in another province. It could be quite helpful when we talk about the fact that doctors are already very mobile, healthcare professionals are mobile and in demand. How many locum opportunities have been lost in this province because currently the paper warfare, the time, the expense, and the frustration associated with getting a locum position approved as guarantee has made some doctors say, eh, not interested in it. So maybe some national standard conversation could be quite helpful on this front. So if you want to chime in on what you think is important here, let's do exactly that. And I think this is uh, applicable to healthcare discussions as well. Curiously, the seniors advocate here, Susan Walsh, she was meeting her counterparts uh, in Ottawa recently. But there's only three different provinces that actually have a seniors advocate, British Columbia, New Brunswick, and us. So at the top of their agenda, because this again is mentioned in the health accord, former seniors advocate Suzanne Brake and others who have been working on seniors-related files think that we've got to do more than just consider the number of long-term care beds, the number of acute care beds, because the institutional approach probably does not work for the vast majority of seniors. So Ms. Walsh thinks that there's going to be the potential for creating what they call an aging at-home benefit. So we know the upside to aging in place, to growing old in your own home, familiar surroundings, close to friends, close to family, the community that you've lived in for so many years. So we don't know what that will look like, how much will be involved in dollars and cents terms, but I think it's encouraging that the federal government is looking at that type of benefit, whether it be tax relief and or additional supports, support systems in the various communities and in the homes, but I think that's a good one. And I'll throw this out there because I'm getting these stories virtually every day, is even when we talk about institutional care, the number of families that are either experiencing this today or looking at it down the road is separating partners, married couples, upon entering long-term care. In Nova Scotia, they figured out a way to legislate that not to be the case any further. In this province, Minister Osborne says, no sense legislating something that we can't accomplish overnight. But we have got to figure that out. So if you have a personal story that is ongoing today, or you're looking down the road, and you know mom and dad at some point may, just may, need to be in a care home, but if they had required different levels of health care, 
at this moment, they'll be separated. And those stories are really mind-boggling and so sad. It's just unbelievable. All right, let's keep trucking along here. It's good to see that Memorial University's bargaining team has reached out to the faculty association say they're willing to head back to the table. Look, there's a lot on the line here, you know, whether it be the graduating nurses and the complications associated with those nursing students being able to return to their clinical placements, but not other disciplines. So there is a bit of faculty against faculty on the go at this moment in time. What I find to be a little bit confusing, I'm not sure how it's going to be managed, is even when you hear from the MUNFA president, that's Ash Hussein, he says, you know, on top of job protection and the double-tier system that is currently in place at MUN, talking about issues in principle. It's easier to bang out agreements when we're talking about rate of pay, sick days, vacation days, and other benefit-related matters, because they're black and white. But when you're talking about issues of principle and collegial governance, and what exactly that means that will be enough for the faculty association to sign on to a deal, even when you factor in long-term reform of the Board of Regents, you know, agreements in principle might be helpful to get people back to work, and most importantly, the students back in the classroom or in the lecture halls. But it does have that much more different feature of dealing with dollars and cents and vacation days versus issues uh, surrounding and regarding principle. So we'll see where those talks go, and hopefully they can get closer to figuring this one out because it does indeed have massive implications. And I would suggest for every single student, and yes, the admin, and yes, the faculty association, which is about some 850 members. And one story about uh, a faculty and this uh, young lady who's not going to be able to potentially graduate on time, dealing with mineral exploration. And there's big opportunities here in this province regarding minerals. But there's now more news, and this is what has what was a rumor has now been pretty much confirmed, is that the CNLOPB announced uh, last Friday they issued a significant discovery license for Kappa Hayden K67. And that's out in the Bay of Nord. So between the various fields that have been probed by Equinor and BP Canada, now the recoverable oil looks much more like one billion barrels. A billion. So the last big field that was approved, of course, Hebron, sanctioned by ExxonMobil Canada and their various partners back in 2012, estimated 700 million barrels. So this is a massive find in what would be Canada's first deep water well. Equinor has long said that their break-even mark is 35 bucks a barrel. The province says that this update on the recoverable oil number of barrels, and if that's 979 or a billion today, there's probably much more than that out there, isn't there? So I say, they say it doesn't really impact how they approach negotiations with the proponent, whether that be on equity stake or royalties to be paid or jobs to be created here. For a lot of people, of course, the long-term potential for royalties from this Beta Nord project is somewhere in the neighborhood right now at $10 billion to be shared between the feds and this province. But the upfront jobs does have a massive implication. So it's not just the jobs and the tax base expanded and the monies earned by tradespeople to keep the momentum going, prove that we have the wherewithal, the ability and capacity to do this work, especially top size work. We do know that some of the work regarding the hull and the FPSO does have to be done elsewhere. But if there's any leaning towards no jobs here, obviously that's going to be a massive sticking point between the province and Equinor BP Canada. But uh, pardon me, a billion barrels of oil is a big number, so you want to take it on. And regarding the oil business, we heard from the FFAW there a couple of days ago on the steps of the Confederation building, 
And they're calling, the FFAW's Inshore Council is calling on the province and the feds to stop oil-burning experiments offshore, all part of the multi-partner research initiative. So basically what's going on is they are intentionally leaking some oil into the water, burning it off, all in an effort to understand the research associated with minimizing environmental impact if and when there's an oil spill, improve response protocols. You know, I think it does add a different tangle when we're talking about just how far from shore Bay Nord is. But you would think that this is probably worthwhile experiments to make sure that we're wholly prepared if and when fluids or oils are leaked into the ocean. But the FFAW says it's just not a good thing and it must stop. They say it takes place over important fishing grounds and they put that in writing to the government back on the 20th of January. They say these experiments would be counterintuitive to government's principles of environmental protection. Is there a way to mimic or to replicate those type of experiments in a wave tank or with simulators at the Marine Institute or what have you? But to try to understand how we can do our very best because inevitably there will be leaks of muds or other lubricants and or oil. So doing what we can do to make sure we minimize the impact on the environment Sounds like a good idea, and I'll throw it out there one more time regarding the fishing industry. Waiting to hear what Canada does, the DFO does, Minister Murray does, regarding the mackerel quota. So it's a shared stock, and we've seen what they've done in the United States. They fished it last year. We did not. Full-time moratorium on mackerel last year. The implications as a bait fish in the billion-dollar or the multi-million-dollar lobster fishery. So... The Americans have set their quota, less than 4,000 tons, but they're out there fishing. It does represent a 27% decrease in the macro quota the year before, but what will Canada do on that front? You want to take it on? You know what to do. All right. Sometimes you never know where stories are going to go. It is truly remarkable that an inanimate object, like a bus shelter, has become symbolic of such a massive conversation. So you've heard about it, and I know it's a particularly towny thing, but I think when we expand what the shelter represents, it gets us down to the brass tacks of issues facing people in every nook and cranny in the province. So the thought was that Metrobus was going to remove the two bus shelters outside the gathering place. Now there's been some agreement between St. John City Council and Metrobus that those shelters will remain for now. And what that for now really means, not 100% sure. But it's one thing, you know, even in the public transit examination to try to increase ridership, more and better bus shelters was even part of it. And to know that people have to rely on getting in a bus shelter to get get in out of the elements because they're homeless is remarkable. So the shelter just, I think, spurs on what's required. More and more conversation about these real-life societal issues and the most vulnerable people in society. It would also be nice to know exactly what complaints have come forward. You know, I hear the rumors and the rumbles that maybe there's been some fights, and maybe there's been garbage, and maybe there's been riders who are not availing of a spot as a client of the gathering place, and needles strewn about. But why doesn't someone tell us exactly what the concern is so that things can be done to address said concerns? Whether it be the gathering place, which has already been negotiated, to be in charge of cleaning it up on site. You know, maybe there needs to be a needle box. And people don't like to have this conversation about harm reduction. But safe injection sites, it just simply makes sense. Would we rather see people with a clean needle uh, do it in a safe space versus finding needles in parks, 
and in alleys and in bus shelters and all the rest of it. So that's a big one. But this shelter really does spur on. More and more of the conversation. What do you think? Let's go. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right. Very quickly. So Hydro is going to test the Labrador Island link again uh, a couple times this month. And if it fails, it means that the final sanction, whenever that might be, might have to wait up to a year from now. Because they have to have the available backup power on the grid just in case something goes wrong. So it's not a summertime event. They're, again, sounding quite optimistic and bullish at Hydro that they think they've got it settled and solved. So the last time there was a major trip because of power flowing across the Labrador Island link, they say they've identified that particular software problem, cleaned up that gremlin or bug. So they think that they're going to get through this next round of testing. But if it fails, we're going to be another year and however untold number of millions of dollars, again, away from seeing whether or not that's ever going to work. Because imagine... We found a way to meet our contractual obligations with Ontario, or pardon me, with Nova Scotia, but not so much for people in this province. And I'm getting tons of reaction here. We had Dennis Brown, the province's consumer advocate on the show. I'm pretty sure it was last week. And the question is, who should pay for the electric vehicle charging stations? Mr. Brown says it should not be the rate payer. It should be people either who are the users of these electric vehicle charging stations, of which there are some 600 EVs in the province. Most of the charging is done at home, but it should not be the rate payer at large. You know, the private sector investment would also mean the consumer probably eventually pays more, but also would we lose the ability for matching dollars, especially from the federal government, to put this kind of infrastructure in place? So lots of heated reaction to who should be paying that bill? And a note on privacy. You never know where your private information is going to end up. If you, say, for instance, get an, uh, an electronic bill from a retailer. You give them your email address. And you hope, and the retailer should absolutely ask for your consent about sharing or disseminating your personal information because they're doing it. So there was an investigation done, and lo and behold, it looks like at Bed Bath & Beyond, Best Buy, Gap, Hudson's Bay Company, Lululemon, PetSmart, Sephora, uh, Home Depot, they've been sharing your info with Facebook. So as much as we talk about privacy protections, you know, the retailers, that data is quite precious and valuable. And of course, when it ends up in the hands of Facebook, they know who you are, where you are, what you buy, what you're interested in. It gives them the ability for very expensive uh, marketing. Now it can be done much more targeted. But, you know, who do these retailers think they are? You know, you have to ask and tell us what you're going to do. Because I would imagine a lot of people, if they say, if you give us your email address, we're giving it to Facebook, they'd say, nah. But now, Facebook and the Google search engines, you know as much as I do. You go to Google search something, a couple of letters in, and they know what you want. And we've been targeted and bombarded with these marketing messages, but the retailers are sharing them unbeknownst to me and you. We're on Twitter. A bit of sharing going on there. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show. When we return, that means you're in the queue to talk about a matter important to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to the National Director of Policy and Advocacy with the Canadian Health Coalition. That's Stephen Staples. Good morning, Stephen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's great to talk to you. Happy calling to have from, you on the uh, Calling from Ottawa this morning. Welcome to the show. 
great to be here. Uh, I really appreciated your comments on healthcare. It's a big day for healthcare. In fact, we might say it's a make or break day for healthcare. Uh, our system is in crisis. We all know that the wait times are getting longer. Everybody's getting burned out. And meanwhile, we've got a lot of provinces in this country uh, that are not really committed to public health care in the way that we want. They, they want to open it up to for-profit providers uh, to do some of the surgeries. And we've got some concerns around that. And uh, today we're going to be with about 20 other organizations. And we're going to be sending a message on Parliament Hill today outside the meeting where the Prime Minister will be meeting with the Premiers. And our message is this. Profit doesn't care. We want to stop privatization. And not only do we want to defend our terrific public system, make it better, we want to expand it. And we're really excited because this year should be the year for Pharmacare. This is a huge benefit that we can have if the government were to take on uh, the cost of prescription drugs into our healthcare system. So you're not scrambling with incomplete medical insurance or no insurance at all, because we know one in five people don't have any insurance. And then these people cut back on their meds. They can't afford them. They cut the pills in half. And you know what? They end up in the emergency rooms. And this is a way that we can reduce the backlog and have better health care outcomes for people. So uh, we're delivering that message today. I just ran into Jessa McCormick. She's the president of the uh, Newfoundland Labor Council and uh, Labor Federation, rather, last night. And there's hundreds of frontline health care workers that are going to be on the Hill today delivering our message. The Right behind the charter, the I would suggest the second most important document is the Canada Health Act, enacted in Parliament in April 1984. And the Premiers have found a way to wiggle around it or find loopholes therein, including Doug Ford in Ontario. You know, it says you cannot have the extra billing, which means we're not supposed to be paying extra dollars out of pocket for health care. And so with Premier Ford's maneuver, he has simply said that you can go to these four private clinics, but just use your OHIP card, like our, my MCP card. So they kind of found a way out around it. I think the whole issue, and I'll bounce a couple off you see what you think. I think for starters, the much the in-demand and highly mobile healthcare professional, there's simply no need this day and age to have differences in standards and accreditation or licensing between province to province, because that could indeed fill up some gaps here when some doctors, for instance, are on holidays over the summer and another doctor might like to have a stay in Burgio or Fogo Island or in Labrador or whatever, but they're not taking it on because it's so expensive and time-consuming and frustrating. Is there time for national standards? Because there's no... I've never heard someone tell me a reason why there requires all these provincial jurisdictions having such a, a tight hold on their own standards. Well, that's a great point. I, I'm not an expert in that area, but I do know that, you know, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. They're the licensing bodies uh, for, uh, for doctors and other medical professionals uh, in, in your province. I, you know, I think there is some ability to, uh, to move around, but, uh, you know, one of the things that we don't want to have, and this is why people are looking to national leadership on this, is that we don't want one province poaching doctors from another province. You know, and the, they just got a big increase in British Columbia, the doctors there. In fact, they're really kind of changing the way the doctors' uh, fees are even structured there. Uh, it's a complicated system, but uh, but it did mean a really big bump in pay. That's how they got the doctors to agree to the new system. But we don't want 
you know, we want to try to avoid uh, poaching uh, people from one province to another. This is a national problem. As you say, the Canada Health Act brought in 1984 built our Canada system, our Canada-wide system, so that we don't have, you know, one province with terrific health care and another province with less than terrific. So uh, so I hear what you're saying, and, and yeah, you know, we, we, we've definitely got to look at ways to modernize things. The other area that we've got to look at is bringing in foreign-trained professionals. That is a big area. Area that people are looking at. We've got people that are skilled here in Canada already. They've been trained in other countries as nurses or nurse practitioners or doctors, and they're not able to practice. And uh, even even the Nurses Association and other professional bodies have said, hey, this is another way that we can get more people into the system, more workers into the system, and take some of the stress off of those people that are already there. Yeah, this province is quite aggressive internationally. Uh, over in India, looking for registered nurses. In Ireland, looking for all, all various disciplines in healthcare. Uh, one quick comment on Pharmacare, which I meant to do after your comment. We're the only first world country on the face of the earth that has universal healthcare, but does not have universal Pharmacare, with a population over 10 million. Million. This examination has been done many, many times. The most recent work done uh, in the Senate showed that there's a whopping big price tag up front, but distinct savings down the line, right? And so the most expensive thing in this country is either a night in the clinic or a night in a hospital, and we know that people are ending up in hospital because they're not taking their meds or they're taking half a pill or whatever the case may be. So pharmacare does sound like a huge price tag in this m- most recent era of massive price tags, but there's a long-term savings. And every time this has been examined, that's been the outcome. Uh, in the, uh, I mentioned national standards and accreditation because I think that's a baby step towards more federal guidance on health care. You know, absolutely provincial jurisdiction and authority. But the, now we have just a competitive landscape. You know, in BC, not only tackling a big price tag or big uh, pay bump to the doctors, but looking at their student loans and all types of things. The province of Nova Scotia was here offering very attractive numbers for a couple of different healthcare disciplines. And of course, people took the offers, which were some 20% more than we pay. So more money is not necessarily the be all and end all. All it's going to mean is that the bidding wars, let's just use a round number, if the bidding war starts at $100,000 a year now, more money in hand might just mean that the bidding war starts at 120000 which solves absolutely nothing. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah, we we've, we've got to we've got to make sure that uh, people are, are are paid fairly for sure, and uh, but we we don't want to be a scoop of people from uh, from other provinces. And as you say, uh, pharmacare will really save uh, people money. It'll save people like you and me money. Uh, you know, I was. Uh, I was a consultant for many years before I did this job. I worked in the tech area as well, too. Uh, Lots of people are self-employed now. They don't have benefits. So, you know, they could really rely on a system like this. It'll put hundreds of dollars in your pocket to help pay for medication and cut down on the uh, on the wait times, getting the people out of ERs. And as you say, it'll save money, too, because all the provinces will be able to negotiate together and the federal with the federal government's guidance to get better prices on the drugs. So while it will be a bit of a sticker shock at the beginning, uh, there's going to be savings uh, down the line uh, directly from prices of drugs, but also just getting people out of the ERs because they're taking their medication. Yeah, purchasing power is a big one. Uh, very quick comment for me, and then I'll, I'll let you react, and then I have to go. The thought about more privatization, because let's not kid ourselves. Even though it's universal healthcare, there's all kinds of private offerings already in the system, whether it be in the dentist office, or even if you go to what is, in, for all intents and purposes, a subcontractor as a family physician working in his or her own clinic. Then there's blood collection, and there's all kinds of private offerings. The worry is that if that gets expanded, because now 
about the ability for premiers or health ministers to craft a message around dealing with backlogs or what have you? If I can go down the street and pay out of pocket for MRI, then me and the public system, I jump up in the queue. The only problem there is, is that we don't have enough healthcare professionals, period. So if the private sector takes them out of the public sector with more incentives and better work-life balance or what have you, we didn't fix anything at all. And on top of that is people with the most complex needs. If I'm a private offered doctor, I can say, no, I don't want you as a patient. So I basically have all of the bumps and bruises, uh, treating pink eye, and if you broke your finger or whatever, and all the real complex needs ends up in the public system, and then the backlog doesn't decrease. It's just either status quo or increases. So I'll give you a final comment before we have to say goodbye, Stephen. Well, uh, I really appreciate the time and, and, and the thoughtfulness that we've been having about this discussion. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't want to have um, a for-profit motive. I mean, have you ever gone into a store where one salesperson maybe is on salary and another person's on commission? You know the difference right away. You can you can tell. And we don't want you know this getting into our healthcare uh, system. There's a risk of uh, upselling. You know, oh well, here's a here's a cataract that's paid for by the government, but I can give you this real nicer one but you got to pay with your credit card on top of that right and and what if it's your child not just you but what if it's a child you're talking about well you know that that's that's upselling and uh, there could be room for extra billing and as you say the, the they had a big fight over this in british columbia uh over the canby surgeries case a private clinic that uh, took the bc government to court because they wanted to to do extra billing and private charges and uh they had a uh, an 800 page decision from the supreme court said you know on balance all the evidence shows it it doesn't uh, make wait, wait times less in fact it'll make it worse for just the reasons you said poaching people from the hospitals to go to the private clinics so that's, uh, I know we need solutions. We're in a crisis, but, uh, you know, profit doesn't care. That's not the way to go. Let's keep building our, our public system and adding uh, new programs with with accountable spending mechanisms for the provinces. And that's the way forward. Yeah, we had the same racket here about cataract surgeries, as a matter of fact. It didn't make it to court. There was some sort of settlement that we don't really even quite understand. I appreciate the time this morning, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Stephen Staples, National Director of Policy and Advocacy with the Canadian Health Coalition. All right. There's a lot to that. I mean, obviously, healthcare is extremely complex. And then we've heard stories about how municipalities are trying to play an active role. And, you know, maybe meetings amongst their residents about what the future of healthcare looks like. Like, for example, Bonavista, offering a service building lot, which might cost a neighbor to $60,000, giving it to a family physician, for instance, for a dollar. And then talking about signing bonuses that the municipality would come up with. We don't know how much that would look like in Bonavista now, but there is a meeting coming up in Central to talk about the future of healthcare. It's being led by Grand Falls Windsor Mayor Barry Manuel. He's next, and then we're going to talk to you about anything. It doesn't have to be healthcare. It can be anything under the sun, as you know. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven and say good morning to his worship, the mayor of Grand Falls, Windsor. That's Barry Manuel. Mayor Manuel, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Oh, I'm good, sir. Nice sunny day here in Central. A bit cold, but, uh, you know, February 7th, I guess it's to be expected. I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to come on today, Patty, and just to tell you about an event we got coming up you referred to before the break. It's uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday, 7 o'clock at the Classic Theatre on High Street in Grand Falls, Windsor, open to all citizens and all residents of the region. Uh, And really what it's about is to bring awareness to 
uh, health care concerns. And as we know, there are many, and you refer to them as complex issues, and uh, that's a true fact. And probably even, uh, you know, you might even be understating that by saying they're complex and no easy solutions. But I find with the health accord uh, now being the document and the plan for the future, we want to make sure that our residents and people in the region understand what the health accord is suggesting and the types of changes that are expected to be coming down the tubes now when you have the new provincial board in uh, in the spring and we understand that uh, there are big changes and things are going to be done much differently and we hope much better Uh, but we're looking to educate our own residents give them an opportunity to have their say uh, ask questions. I mean, clearly, as we know, uh, healthcare is not a municipal responsibility. And uh, therefore, you know, we're not there to tell people how everything is going to work in detail about the health accord or what's within. But we certainly can talk about what we've learned. And we've got a coalition that's been started uh, over a year now. We've been involved in all the town halls, engaged with meetings with uh, Dr. Parfrey and uh, Sister Elizabeth Davis and, and Mr. Dave Diamond, who's in charge of the consolidation of the health boards, of course, and many, many other stakeholders. So we thought it's important because there seems to be a lack of understanding in what the health accord means uh, to our future. And as you know, it's such an important document in terms of our health care in the province for the future that we want to make sure that people are in tune with what's going on. So a complex might be understating it, fair ball, but with an issue as broad as healthcare. so what does the agenda look like? What are you going to try to achieve here in this meeting? Is it about trying to flesh out what the health accord means for a central Newfoundland healthcare delivery, or is there very specific issues that you're going to try to broach? Because if you take on the health accord, that meeting is going to take a month. Exactly, or longer. Yeah, no, the idea would be for the chair of our coalition, as I mentioned, and the coalition is made up of uh, professionals. Uh, We have a retired doctor, we've got a retired administrator as our chair, there's an educator, there's a communications person, a lawyer. So we've got a good group of people in the community who, again, have been engaged in the process now for over a year and have learned a lot. So they will do a short presentation through the chair, Sir O'Farrell. They'll take a few minutes. And uh, then Councillor Holly Dwyer, who is on the coalition and also our representative to the local health authority, will do a small presentation. And then I'll speak as well on the role of municipalities when it comes to the health accord. And one of the big things, Patty, is uh, you hear all the time, the social determinants of health. And, you know, social determinants of health are preventative measures, of course, that are going to uh, have maybe difficult to quantify, but certainly benefits to uh, healthcare in the future in the province. So, uh, things we've been doing is, you know, trying to make sure that our citizens have opportunities for healthy living. So, that could be the 100 plus new programs that we've introduced in the last few years for all ages and abilities, or it could be uh, the many events and that kind of stuff we're doing, or it could be the concerts in the park and, and those sorts of things that, you know, give people an opportunity to be healthy. And then after about 40 minutes, 30 minutes we're going to open it up to the floor for comments and again uh, you know we certainly don't want this to be a political exercise that's not the intention at all Uh, but we know people have serious concerns I mean there's a lack of family doctors the emergency rooms are closing around us we have our own emerge that is uh, bursting at the seams and uh, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of that so our job is to listen to collect the information to uh, get the group of people who are there to hopefully uh, engage into a group that we can continue to stay uh, in touch with through email and 
as this continues to unfold, and especially once the provincial health authority is uh, is formed, and I guess starts in the spring, then to uh, to make sure people are, are in tune, you know, because these days with COVID and everything else, it's just been a, a difficult time to get messages out there. And uh, we felt that this was a good opportunity for us to get the message out there and to uh, talk about some of the things that may impact our region. Sure. I mean, I think municipalities absolutely play a role, specifically on social determinants of health. But then, of course, we've seen Bonavista, what they're doing, and offering signing bonuses, what have you. I don't know if that's going to be uh, in vogue amongst other municipalities. But, you know, when we tailor a package to recruit any healthcare professional, it's not just about that one professional. It's about their family, their partner, their children. But it's also about what community looks like. So, for instance, have you ever had a conversation with Dr. Megan Hayes, the deputy minister responsible for, for said recruitment and retention, to try to put forward you know, some thoughts in her mind so that when we're looking, whether it be to expand obstetrics or anything, about what living and working in Grand Falls, Windsor or surrounding communities looks like? Yeah, we have. We've spoken to Dr. Hayes and corresponded with her as well as, you know, uh, the department and the health minister. And we've been really engaged in this. And I'll give you an example. This uh, coalition, one of the things that they did was they presented council with 18 recommendations of what the municipality can do with regards to recruitment and retention. And there's a lot of good uh, ideas there. Some things we've already been doing, you know, we've had specific uh, recruitment exercises ourselves. We've had family days for physicians and their families. We've had local residents who are working out of here that we've uh, sponsored social occasions for them. And we've shared those recommendations with the department. Uh, you know, so that they could you know, look at them and hopefully, uh, you know, be a part of the solution, which is what we want to be, really. And when you talk about the Bonavista, and it's been in the news lately, uh, there's a lot of Bonavistas, as you know. There's many uh, Bonavistas in terms of the lack of doctors and the lack of health care. Uh, just in our region, you know, Harbour, Breton, Conagra Peninsula is struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bay Verton area is struggling. Uh, Fogo, you know, New West Valley uh, is in the news a lot about the the emergency services. So uh, I guess my concern would be that even though I commend the council for being proactive, and I think Stephenville as well have been doing some uh, monetary incentives for bringing uh, physicians. Uh, but of course, the fear would be that if everybody starts doing that, then it becomes a bidding war. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's the long-term solution. Uh, but that just speaks to how difficult the problem is right now for people. Give us the where and when's for the meeting one more time, uh, Mayor Manuel. The meeting is 7 o'clock tomorrow evening, Wednesday, at the Classic Theatre in Grand Falls, Windsor. Uh, We do ask that you pre-register if you can, and the opportunity is on the town's website or Facebook page. Uh, But you can just show up and attend as well. So we're hoping for a big crowd to come out as an opportunity for your voice to be heard, and uh, we look forward to uh, engaging with our citizens. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. That's Grand Falls, Windsor Mayor Barry Manuel. Before we get to the break, let's get a bouquet. Line number five. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. Good morning to you. It's Pat from Ontario, and I phoned to thank VOCM and Dave there for lining me up with uh, Mrs. Alice Murphy, the National Silver Cross mother for 2004, I think. 2006, it was. She was... And uh, I phoned and had a nice conversation with her on Saturday. Very nice lady. And she's backing me up 
too on the selling of the Silver Cross Memorial Cross medal. It shouldn't be allowed. Right. So just uh, so people know what we're talking about, Pat, you called some while back talking about the fact that you can indeed buy and sell the Silver Medal and the Victoria Cross, and you're saying that neither should be allowed. So just so people know what we're talking about. And yeah. you wanted to speak with uh, Alice Murphy. And I'm sorry, what's the uh, appropriate... She's, she's, an, she's a lady in 2006 that came to Ottawa uh, on November the 11th and laid the wreath in Ottawa. She was chosen that year. I've got two other uh, Silver Cross mothers who also made that same trip. I managed to contact Sheila Anderson, I think 2015. She went to Ottawa. She's standing behind me to stop selling that medal. And I also have another Silver Cross national mother, Diana Abel down in Brampton, Ontario, again, she's backing me up. The sale of that medal should not be allowed. It's bad enough that they're selling the service medals of the soldier, of the dead soldier. But to get that Silver Cross medal, the soldier basically died in action or in service like died. That's an honor medal given to the widow or the mother who produced the soldier, who is the ultimate sacrifice in the long run. That medal should never be on the selling market. And if you pipe into eBay right now, you can pull all kinds of them up on there for sale. I mean, are they all real, or are some of them knockoffs or replicas that have been made? Some probably could be, but the stupid government in 2001 and two come up with another. They've added this hardware for sale now now they can hand out they hand out the the soldier when he's doing his card i guess to fill in to to join the service uh the car uh, the medal is mentioned on it now they're handing out three within the family itself up until the second world war i think it was only one was allotted and it was to the mother or the widow of the uh, of the the fallen soldier who is an ultimate sacrifice it's like sticking a dollar sign on a dead soldier's grave it's bad enough that they're wheeling and dealing with the military service medals but that one is an honorary and both these three women who all went to ottawa and laid that wreath are backing me up on it that should not be sold that medal should either be buried with the soldier in the gravesite, buried with the mother when she died but it should never be on the selling market yeah or passed down generation to generation with the pride right bestowed uh, with that medal i appreciate the bouquet and the time again this morning pat thank you okay thank you very much patty take care yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about Mon. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, a couple of quick things. Uh, anybody who's got mini splits, if they don't do it every two or three months, especially if you have animals and a lot of people in your house, should just pop out the filters. They come out really easy, and, and you'll notice that they, they accumulate a lot of... Uh, build up and it really reduces the the efficiency so anybody who's got many splits if they don't know this they should clean it more often especially during the heating months fair enough i mean cleaning the filter is pretty important for the efficiency the efficient operation of it no matter what but yep yeah 100 percent uh the other thing i did an interesting experiment on saturday i went out my ev which wasn't plugged in uh and it's a 2015 nissan leaf so it's pretty old and it went out at the coldest part of the day and i Press the button. She started up, and I was able just to drive. So it was it was a bit of a test. So for those people concerned about the cold, it didn't seem to affect it at all. Didn't have to warm it up. And 
just want to throw that out there. Yeah, of course, the cold, the implication there is what kind of distance you'll get out of a full charge versus a warm day. So, I mean, and I don't know because I don't have one. No, hopefully. I know you're talking about it, so hopefully soon. Uh, what, one other tip for a lot of people who I know are struggling, um, oatmeal is a great and inexpensive uh, breakfast option and healthy too. So I was looking, it's on sale at the, at Sobeys for four bucks for a kilogram. So that works out to about 15 cents a serving. So getting back to some of those basics, some of those staples can help people be a little healthier and also uh, maybe get their budget a little bit uh, so it's more manageable. I don't mind a bit of oatmeal, a bit of brown sugar, off we go. You're right, 100%. Don't even need milk, just a bit of hot water. Um, I want to touch on the Port-a-Port Peninsula protests before I get on to Mon, which is the main reason I called. Um, we had a gentleman on yesterday, and, and I know he mentioned that he went door-to-door. And, and I, I think if your neighbor, or especially someone influential in your service district, knocks on your door and asks you a question, on some level you're going to tell them what they want to hear. I'm not so sure it's, it's a really super democratic process. The other question I would ask is, uh, where's everybody who lives there who's advocating? Where do they earn their money? And if if it's indirectly or directly from a government source, I would like them to try and think and, and ask themselves realistically, where's the future money coming from for everybody if we don't adopt some of these new technologies? Not only are they green, I know it's easy for me to say I'm not, I'm not living there and I'm not trying to be like condemning anybody or anything, but I mean, you know, I, I, it, there needs to be due diligence. And uh, however, we, the not in my backyard thing is getting a little old when it comes to this province that's kind of running out of runway. I think a lot of people would be prone to offer the answer that they think people want to hear. Uh, that always stands to reason. But of course, the big focus has been on the sample size. When, in fact, you know how the question is worded and designed, how the sample is designed, all play a role in the veracity of any survey and or poll that's out in the field. So it's not just about we had 84% of one, of 1,100 who were, who were questioned or polled because there's much more to it than that. It's actually a science. People do this as an approach to scientific compilation of data. So it's not just whether or not you like that project. No, 100%. I mean, I, I just think in terms of, and it's not all about jobs, it's just about embracing the future. I was talking to someone from Valet, and Valet has signed uh, deals with Ford, Tesla, and GM. You know, that's three pretty big players, as well as Swedish uh, battery maker Northvolt to supply, like, so basically all the capacity that, that Valet can produce um, is going to be going in that direction. So, you know, if from a greening point of view, once we have hydrogen made, uh, and ammonia on this province, then all the mines in Labrador can be supplied. The buses in St. John's, like John Risley said yesterday, like it's it, having that source here, just like just like uh, the Brea Renewable Refinery, also you know producing renewable aviation fuel. Like in a perfect world, you know St. John's Airport, Gander Airport will actually have this product. And uh, you know again, part of us embracing the future. I mean, I think everybody needs to think: are they a horse? Are they a horseshoe maker in their mindset? Or are they the people? Are they a Henry Ford in their mindset? Like, are they embracing the future, or are they clinging maybe too much to the past? Well, I guess there's a bunch of different columns there. You can probably take a dollop from each. Yep. Yep. Okay, on to Mon. You know, as a Mon student, um, I've been reflecting. You know, where are we? What are we doing? Where are we going? And and I'm looking at this this negotiation process, and I'm thinking, well, the first opening salvo was a 12 percent offer for management that's six percent first year two percent two percent two percent and 
you know, I alluded to it last week, but management in most cases in public service, uh, and, and even in private sector, but more so in public service, management generally get the same raise as the people that answer to them. So it's kind of disingenuous, you know, to be, you know, I, I want to give kudos, first of all, to NAEP, to QP. They all agreed to 2% pay raises in this province. They didn't threaten to shut the province down. Um, you know, I, it's very reasonable. And I, and I know I'm oftentimes critical, but, you know, you know, given inflation, all that stuff, I mean, I think they deserve a pat on the back. And I want to thank the workers and the leadership for that. But now we got over at Mun, who, who is struggling and not able to maintain their buildings. And this raise will actually, in four years' time, assuming everybody gets the same raise, will be costing $51 million a year extra in salaries alone. Not to mention the fact that the pensions will also go up proportionate to this as well. Now, Mun, the Faculty Association is quick to say it's not just about money because that financial offer seems to be pretty substantial. Here's where I get completely confused is, look, I get the thought about having a seat at the table, having a say in academic policy, having a say in how and where money is spent, but there's a lot of gray and difference in opinion about what collegial governance means. So if they just say, introduce a definition of collegial governance, and the employer said no, but even if we had for instance, the province makes an amendment to the University Act and Monfa gets two seats at the Board of Regents. When they also throw in they need to reform the board, that principle about reform can make take many different shapes and forms. It could take one year or ten years. It could take input from an independent consultant or it could take input from all sides, including the students' union. So trying to come up with solutions to collective bargaining that are things based on principle becomes much more tangly than compensation, benefits packages, sick days, vacation time, that kind of stuff. So I'm not really sure how they uh, uh, reach a resolution here because, you know, what does an agreement even on the definition having to do with long-term reform? So I don't really know where this is headed because it seems like the finances, if they reject the financial offer, then we've got ourselves a big problem. But all these conceptual issues, I don't know how they get settled. You know, but the thing is, at the end of the day, every organization in the province and Mon has to be sustainable. And they increased tuition by $14 million last year, and that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, just this year alone, when this is accepted, because, again, this is retroactive, they're going to spend $25 million more just on labor alone if it goes through all parts of government, all parts of Mon. And, you know, you've got people like the president who, assuming that she gets the same raise, over after four years, she'll be making $56,000 more a year. And, you know, and when you get into these the post-employment benefits and the present employment benefits, I mean, they, they've got a, a liability of like two over $270 million, sorry, million dollars, which is a massive number. And, and the teachers, when they went through this process with their pension reform, they, they, they actually got everybody together and they said, we're not going to have two tiers, we're, you know, which is what the province did, they had two tiers. So if you were hired after a certain point, your pension is different. And, and they and they actually settled, and and, and it cost the, the more senior people pension money, but they, they met on the same level of playing field. I mean, pe- people with a seat at the table, I think it's great, but what I'm hearing from the people with a seat at the table is we don't really care about the finances. We don't really care about these post-employment benefits. But they do. Well, I, I know. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, they care about making more money, but they don't care about running the university better. Now, I'm not saying the management are any better. So, I, you know, I, you know, I, and and then you asked. The, the Munsu guy, the Menor, more University Student Union guy, about whether they're worried about 
whether these raises would end up affecting tuition. And his answer was, which unfortunately I think runs right through the whole province, is, oh, well, you know, the public finances most of month, so that's not a big deal. Like, what do you mean it's not a big deal? Where, why do you think that they raised tuitions because they needed the money to be able to run month? I mean, yeah. somehow, somehow the leaders of the province, and that includes union leaders and managers, need to try and connect the dots. You know, when you're in a death spiral, economic death spiral, where your university can't maintain your buildings, your pension and your your employment benefits are all way underfunded and, and you know, heading downward. And, and, and you're not willing to even talk about that. You know, you just want to talk about, you know, philosophy about, uh, about you, know, what's, you know, what's going to keep the university running. Well, well part of that is that. I mean, I, I just wish that, that all these people would start lead with. We know there's big challenges. We want to get at the table to, uh, you know, impact the financial situation. Right. And, and maybe we shouldn't get 12 percent, like, like maybe we should just be okay with two percent, like our brothers. There's not going to be any backpedaling on that. Uh, I appreciate it, Tom. I'll make for the news, but thanks for the call. Okay, take thanks. care. Everyone. Thank All you. the best, Bob. Okay. Uh, you know, some of the issues, the proposals that are been put forward by the faculty association, rejected by the university, about a definition of collegial governance, about sharing of documents, whether it be uh, institutional or other public representations, uh, present articulation agreements between the employer and public private education institutions, share within 30 days a signing of a copy of any new articulation agreements between the employer and all public and private education. Does that? Term, teaching term appointments for a single term of teaching will be no less than five months long, and for two semesters of teaching, ten months. Da, da, da. So some of it, you know, is hard and fast about the timeliness of sharing of information. But even a, a share, so what's the next step in that? What's the next step in understanding, okay, the documentation, information has been shared, and then what? So anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, there's still plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is absolutely up to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number six. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. I just wanted to bring it to the public's attention. I'm not sure if they're aware or not, but if you go edit a Newfoundland for medical travel or medical treatment that's not offered here, mm -hmm. people think it's paid for, but it's not. There are some examples where there are some monies uh, available. For instance, if you're traveling for IVF uh, fertility treatment, there are some subsidies that's been afforded to that case. But you're right; it's there's there, those are the exceptions, not the rule. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But I don't know if people are aware of it because, under my circumstances, I have to go out for medical uh, surgery. I guess you would say, and uh, well, I guess the surgery is paid for, but like uh, allowances for airfare and accommodations and meals. And the website is pretty, uh, it's not clear, actually, because when they give you your allowance of, from MCAP, it's called, they take 50% back. Like, they're giving you uh, a maximum of $43 per day for food. But when they do the calculation, when you get home, you have to pay everything up front, airfare, accommodations, and everything. But when you come home and they calculate it, they take the $400 family allowance. Uh, like you got to pay a four hundred dollar deductible, then the hundred dollars is paid at a hundred percent. Then after that, they take fifty percent off everything. On the website, it's kind of explained differently. Yeah, a lot of the references on the medical transportation assistance program website really does deal with in-province travel as opposed to some of the exemptions that are granted 
for people to travel out of province and certain high profile cases get some headlines right like the fertility yeah. the lack of a fertility clinic here got a lot of headlines some attention yeah. was given to it i remember one story of a gentleman who uh had the uh, band on put around his stomach and then consequently had all this excess skin and could not get that treatment and that grabbed a lot of headlines for whether or not his traveling out of province should be covered but i guess the only way to know what you're getting yourself into is to, and it's not really any sense talking to your doctor directly because they're not the ones that have the authority to grant or approve anything. You need yeah. to deal directly with medical, the MTAP uh, group, because that's ultimately who makes that decision. Exactly. The doctors think because it's not offered here. I dealt with doctors who thought it was all paid for, which the surgery is paid for, yes, if it's approved. Like, you got to go under certain stipulations for that, too. But if it's not offered here, you have to pay your own airfare and your meals and your transportation. Then they take, like I say, $400 family deductible off. Then they give you 50. Well, it's not even 50% really when it's all said and done. I don't know if people realize that. And it's not a choice. I mean, if it's not offered here, you can't sit back and die. You have to go. And there's people who can't afford. I pity the poor people who can't afford to go. What do they do? Like, it's not not reasonable. Yeah, and folks who have been uh, diverted uh, for cancer care treatment in Toronto, that's another example where there's some cost coverage available. And not to pry into your own personal circumstances because it's none of my business, but is there a specific surgery or, or treatment that you're referring to that you thought was covered and is not? Uh, well, I did have to go away four years ago um, for Gamma Knife, I think it's called. Um, it's a radiation exactly to your brain for an hour or whatever the doctors see fit to do at the point where, where you're two, but now I have to go away again for a brain surgery that's not offered here in Newfoundland. Oh, okay. Well, I wish you well in your treatment and your hopeful quick uh, recovery. Would you like to offer anything else this morning while we have you on the line? No, that's it. I just wanted to make people aware because if they're in the same circumstances, it would be nice for them to be aware of what, what's going on. 100%. Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. Let's try line three. Sean, you're on the air. Hello, uh, Patty. Uh, I got a little bit of a controversial um, topic today. It's uh, not as important as most of the topics you heard this morning, but it has to deal with Atlantic Lotto. Okay. And the new uh, mobile site they have. I just found it the other night on... uh, on my mobile app, apps, actually, I got a more or less of an ad on uh, on my Facebook uh, for this mobile site that Atlantic uh, Lotto Corporation has out, and I just looked into it and um, I noticed that there's a casino part to the site, and um, I just looked at it and uh, as soon as I went to the casino, it would be something like the BLTs that you see in clubs here in Newfoundland. And um, Newfoundlanders aren't allowed to play those uh, to play those on uh, the Atlantic Lotto new site that they have, the new uh, mobile site. Um, I asked immediately, I got on and asked an agent on there, uh, why aren't Newfoundlanders allowed to play uh, the same games as the other provinces? She explained to me more or less that... Uh, the government of Newfoundland uh, would not or have not of, uh, of yet uh, approved uh, that Newfoundlanders could play uh, on the Atlantic uh, site. That's uh, exactly Atlantic it. Yep. And um, I can't understand this why. Uh, she explained to me that, uh, that it was because um, more or less Newfoundland uh, has too many gamblers in it. 
uh, or that's that was more or less it. Uh, she said, uh, well, from what we've seen is that Newfoundland, uh, compared to the other provinces per capita in uh, your other Atlantic provinces, um, has spent a lot more money in uh, Atlantic Lotto. And I'm just wondering why Newfoundlanders can't play these sites when I did a little look into exactly how much is paid out just to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia on these um machines, just like machines for your mobile site, um, it was well up in the hundreds of thousands, just in the, in the uh, well over, well over 200 and something thousand just for a part of January, just the people that won in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia uh, on BLT machines that you can play on your phone. Uh, I think it's it's a little bit of a a little bit of a slap in the mouth of Newfoundlanders saying that, uh, you know, you don't have the right to play the same games on Atlantic Lotto. And it's for the Atlantic provinces. And I get uh, it. Um, they basically you know, think that we have a gambling issue, and they're not wrong. I mean, we lead the league in uh, per capita money spent at the VLTs. We lead the league in the scratches. We lead the league in the tear opens. Uh, in 2021-2022, Atlantic Lotto returned somewhere in the neighborhood of $135 million to this province. It's all very close. I think New Brunswick mm-hmm. gets the, uh, pardon me, Nova Scotia probably got the most at around 139 or 41 or something in that neighborhood. So we're all very, very close. But I guess the province, like many other things that have happened since there was single-game betting allowed, whether or not we were going to open up access for residents of this province for the ALC's casino site, they at this moment you're, you're 100% right. It's simply because the province hasn't granted authority. Well, Patty, it's just uh, my problem was, uh, you know, if, if just say I don't drink and I don't do whatever, you know, I, I might want to go out and spend a couple dollars in VLTs. But if I do... Why would I go out and spend two or three hundred dollars, or even sixty or eighty hundred dollars, or sixty eighty dollars, to uh, play VLTs to uh, win a hundred, or win a, you know maybe you get lucky once every blue moon and uh, win five hundred? That's a very blue moon, Patty. I saw a fella on this on the website. It was right there as picture. On January the 16th, he won. On January the 18th, he won. Or the next week, sorry, over $10,000 on the casino site. This yeah. is big money, these people And again, th- they would be the exceptions because the rule is that the house wins. And that's the reality in, in gambling, whether it be at Harrah's in Las Vegas or you're on the ALC casino site or you're playing the VLTs. If you play them... Over any length of time, 99% of people are down. I mean, they'll have the odd win, keeps you coming back, and the whirs and the bings and the lights and the bells are pretty attractive and luring. But, yeah, th- basically the summary is the province has not granted the ALC uh, the opportunity for people in this province, in our area codes, to be able to play those casino games, whether it be the $100,000 pyramid or whatever else is in there. Thank you very much, Patty. I just think it's a slap in the face to Newfoundlanders and uh, calling everyone here an addict, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't think... But, uh, you know, I don't agree with it at all. You Fair know, enough. People got their rights, the people got the rights to do whatever they want in this world or, or do uh, whatever is legal in this world. I can't see how the government, in every club and now restaurants in this, in this Newfoundland, can go in and play BLTs 
and we're not allowed to uh, play uh, play him on the phone like other provinces. Yes, I know. I got that part. There's lots of gambling opportunities online, tons of them, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. just wondering why, why I, you know, if I want to donate to uh, donate to the Atlantic Lotto on my phone instead of going to a club, why, why can't I? Understood. You're probably Thank not you, alone. Patty. Appreciate the Thank time. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't often throw gambling into the whole addiction pot. You know, we basically talk about drugs and alcohol and tobacco. When, in fact, you add in food-related addictions, you add in gambling, and there's lots of other things that become a massive problem for individuals and then consequently their family. Because it's not that long ago that it was Chess Crosby tried to bring forward a class action lawsuit regarding VLTs. So, and then the thought goes to whether or not there should be a, an actual casino here in the province. And politicians have been loath to go down that path. And I think I understand why. But if you factor in just how much money is gambled online versus in person, it's staggering. The amount of money spe uh, spent on betting, regardless if it's on the ponies or in uh, digital casinos or whatever else, the offshore betting sites are bombarded with money coming from this province. Absolutely bombarded. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jack's have an issue with his cost of living check. Then we're talking about long-term disability. And then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Catherine, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Hi. Um... I want. I wanted to call to talk about homeless and 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 men, mental health illness and a little bit about myself and my situation is that I'm close to the doorstep of homelessness myself. Um, I've had a lot of uh, trauma and that in my life, and I've been. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Um, in September, um, and I sort of ran out of all my funds as far as you know my my savings and any kind of like um, insurances that I well I only had tapped into my EI sick benefits and I'm still haven't been able to get long term disability or um, or my I had coverage for my car, like for my car loan. I haven't been able to get that. Um, but I'm not really here to talk about my own dilemma. Um, as, I have, as it is right now, I'm, I'm mostly here to talk about homelessness and what's happening here in our province. Um, do you have this to say? I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> Go ahead. I lost my brother two and a half years ago. He was a he was a soldier. I listened to your story there a few moments ago of a lady talking about the memorial cross. Now I hold a memorial cross myself. My brother he left it to me, and he designated it to me. And it's basically the only thing I have that means something to me because he gave it to me. Um, I never got to bring my brother home. 32 years of serving his country. And his only wish was to come home. 
to be buried, and that hasn't happened. But again, I'm not in to get into my own dilemmas. But basically, through all my traumas and all the history of my traumas, I had developed complex PTSD. I've had all the support of my doctor's letters to verify the diagnosis, but I've been still turned down by my insurances. But right now, in this moment, I'm sitting in my house, and I'm warm, and I'm looking out at the snow and the cold, and I can't help but think about our own people that are cold and hungry, and they're just waiting to be saved, you know, by someone. And it seems like we're saving the whole world while we ignore our own people. And we're just walking over them and walking around them and just, you know, and nobody knows anybody else's story. I mean, you know, we all have a story. I mean, someone that passed me on the street and looked me in the face would know that I was going to be on the doorstep of homelessness. They don't know their story. And we judge them and we make them feel worthless. This coming Saturday, I am, and I have nothing pre planned. I honestly don't. I've been listening now for the past days with respect to the stories of homelessness. And I am, I kind of thought, like, what can I do in this moment? to help and our government should have been prepared for winter winter we all know winter is coming you know and and only now they're going to try to get a plan together there's no time like people are going to be dying downtown on the streets looking up at the stairs wishing that they had a home a warm home to go into so why not do something now? We're good at that. We like we're Newfoundlanders. We've always been able to rally around our people and you know, and other people's people and we've, you know, brought people together at our at critical times and we made things happen fast. But we need to make it fast for these people. We need to make it happen like now, not yesterday. So this coming Saturday, I want to have a off-the-cuff rally in downtown St. John's. I don't have all the details yet, but I hope the OCM will help me share them as I unfold them. I'm good at that. I've, I've worked conferences and whatnot in my lifetime, and I can put together a pretty good rally. And I'd like for everyone all in Newfoundland and Labrador to gather around our own people and to give them some warmth for one day. Bring Tim's card. Bring one blanket out of your closet. One blanket, a pyramid, a hat. You know, put it on their head. Look at them in their faces. Look in their faces. See their pain and see how hurt they are. You know? You don't know their story and what they've been through. And we can judge all all we want, but one day that might be us sitting on that street, just like it might be me. When you have the details shored up, you can share them with me and I can share them with the listeners, Catherine. 
Sounds great. Let me know. I will. Okay, thank you. Take care. Is she gone? Okay. Um, let's see here. We'll have a uh, chat with Jack when we come back from this break. But appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Michelle's got a problem with the snow plow. It's covered up a ramp she needs to use. And there's a caller talking about the healthcare system in general, maybe how it deals with people somewhere on the spectrum. I'm guessing that the, that's the autism spectrum. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go back to two. Jack, you're back on the air. Yeah, Patty. Uh, I'm sorry what I said just earlier. Um, uh, I'm having problems cashing my wife's check. Well, my Kamala wife's check, right, uh, for the, um, the $500, right? Right. Like, I, I call Siobhan Cody's office. They turned around and gave me a number to call. We called it, left six messages. They finally got it back to us last week and turned around and said, well, we cannot issue another check, but the check is going to be void in six months. Now, we still have a funeral to pay off, right? So that money is going towards the funeral. We cannot cash that check anywhere. Does your wife have a formal estate? No, she had no will. She had nothing. She just died suddenly. I'm sorry to hear died that. On, on, on Father's Day. And my condolences. Right, this year, right? Like, it's bad enough now. I'm having a tough time myself, right? And we're, I'm trying to make ends meet, but it's very hard to do. But meanwhile, uh, this check, Siobhan Cody says that everybody's titled to the check, and you shouldn't have any problems cashing them. But I'm after hearing from a lot of people that they're having problems cashing these checks. Yeah, I mean, if it's a federal government check, the bank is obliged to cash uh, any check, $1,500 or less, right away. There's a hold on yeah. the provincial checks up to five business days. But this one is a unique circumstance. But because your wife, your common law partner, yeah. did not have a will, consequently does not have a state, this makes it... A little bit more complicated to get figured out. Now, yeah. did you actually speak to the bank about it? Did they give you any recommendations or suggestions, or was it, was it as simple as you need a new check? You need a new check. Okay. So it has to like it like my daughter is is the executive of of her estate because that's the way it went because she was the only one in the province of Newfoundland at the time, right? Now she's after going to her bank, and she went some through my bank where my Kamala wife had the account, they she phoned up the bank and told them, the bank told them to go reopen up her account, deposit the check, and then withdraw it and then close it up. She went to do that. They wouldn't do it. Yeah, they won't do that. Right. Yeah, I mean, and at this moment in time, there's no way for you to open up a joint account. It's too bad you didn't have one in the beginning because that could have yeah. been all settled. Uh, easily enough. So was there an actual reason given as to why the province would not uh, issue a new check? Are they simply saying because there is no estate, there is no formal will, we have no way to uh, ensure that the check makes it to where it's designated, uh, destined to be? So was there a reason offered or they simply said no? The, uh, the guy on the phone said they weren't going to issue a check, period. Another check. Right? Yeah. It, 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 like, it didn't matter if, 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 if she had a will or not, in my eyes, uh, uh, that to turn around and say, well, we want to issue a, another check. 
Now, you know, yeah, and, and the problem is, is that, yes, we still owe money. It's no big deal. Like, it, it, it's getting paid out. But every day, it's, the funeral, it's not paid. It's compound interest a day on, on it every day. So it's, you know, right? And, and it's getting to be on, on, it's getting frustrating, right? Because the government turns around and says, well, they're going to do this for you and do that for you. And meanwhile, th- that they're stabbing you in the back, right? Yeah. I, I tell you what I'm going to do, Jack. I've got uh, a contact at the Department of Finance. I'm going to get them to give me some guidance on what can possibly be done here. Done, if there's yeah. a way to work around this, yeah. I have your number. If I can get any information that can be of any help, whether it be from a bank yeah. and or for from the Department of Finance, I will call you back personally. But I need to do a couple of quick follow-ups before I can yeah. figure this out. Yeah, I know. I, 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 like, I'm, I'm after doing it, too. I'm after calling Siobhan Cody's office. Um, prior to this and, and they gave me a number and everything it goes back to somebody else you call them you leave a message oh i, I mean yeah they get back to you if they're not they don't yeah so you right. use the number that ends in 6376 i assume yeah uh, i'm going to use the email address which people have a bit more luck with and i have a, a personal contact that i have his private number that i'll give him a shout so yeah. when you were at the bank did you simply say what happens if i just put it in my bank account I no, just go to the ATM and I put it in. What happens um, then? My daughter tried to put it in her account, yeah. and they wouldn't accept it. Okay. And simply because there's no signature signing it over, and there's no name of your wife on either account. No. Let me see if I can figure it out, Jack. Okay. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Thank you. You're so welcome. Much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, when the province was quick to say, look, because we knew full well, by the time the program began and when the checks started to flow, inevitably... There was going to be people who were eligible upon announcement of the program that would pass away. Of course, that was going to be the absolute case. So it was one thing to say, well, if you had a will and as part of the estate, you can simply cash a check. No big deal. Just keep moving. But this circumstance is a little bit different. So why is it not an opportunity for the province to accommodate like they did? Because when they first announced it, there was no mention of what happened if someone died. But when they knew that was a reality of life, because one of the realities of life is death, that they would have to be able to accommodate. So that move was made for the masses, but there's going to be exceptions. And, you know, the government programs intended to be helpful, but not so helpful when you run into these kind of roadblocks, though, all the same. Uh, let's get to line number one. Michelle, you're on the air. Hi, my name is Michelle. Yes, ma'am. Uh, um, thanks, Patty, for letting me on the radio. No problem. Um, I'm a little bit upset because I'm an, I'm in a wheelchair and I um, live on Froud Avenue and we're after having a lot of snow and ice and um, I got a doctor's appointment, a specialist appointment um, on Thursday and I got to go to it and there's no one to help me shovel out my ramp. Now, I've been in housing for uh, uh, 15, uh, since 15 years. And when I first moved here, uh, when I looked at this apartment, uh, they told me my the ramp would be shoveled out every winter. Now, the first three 
winters, I was shoveled out. Okay? Yep. And ever since that, they're after calling me and telling me there's no more money. Like, okay, there's no more money. But um, I got an health issue that if I don't get to this appointment, if I don't have my ramp shoveled out to get to this appointment and to get to hospital, if, if possible, I could die. Michelle, who's giving you a ride to the hospital? Like, is it on the go bus, or do you have a taxi coming, or what is it? Uh, no, my Kamala husband drive me. But the issue is, too, my Kamala husband is waiting for uh, er, er, Ernie's. Uh, he got Ernie, okay. and he's not allowed to shovel. And he's allowed to shovel white snow. But what the problem is right now, the the uh, I need I need a snowblower. And I haven't got access to a snowblower. And because the ramp got ice on it from the weekend and now it's gonna now it's snow over it. And like I need to shovel out for Thursday and we're getting more snow and housing is not gonna help me. Like what am I supposed to do? Like if I knew this fifteen years ago I wouldn't have moved here. They lied to me. Okay, just remind me. Where are you? Did you say Froud Avenue? Yes, 69, Froud Avenue. All right. So I don't know how quickly I can get someone dispatched to 69 Froud Avenue. What time is your appointment? My appointment is Thursday at 2. So you need it done by Thursday, say lunchtime. Yes. Okay, so if you're listening and you're going around in a plow... And you have the wherewithal and the time to want to help out Michelle at 69 Froud Avenue. He can head that way and take care of it, if at all possible. Call me back this time tomorrow to let me know if it happened. If not, I'll try to arrange someone formally to go up and do it. Okay, thank you very much. No problem. Let me know, Michelle. Yeah, thank okay. you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. So, lots of good people out there that are in that world of clearing some snow, whether it be you got a plow in the front of your rig or you got a shovel in the back of the truck. And, of course, we know that, that the uh, the wing roll snow was really quite heavy and dense and wet and nuisance to deal with. But if her ramp is covered, she has very little option. So if someone's out there can do that, let me know. We would be more than happy to uh, report it and give you the kind shout-out. Let's go to line number five. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. How about you? Very stressed. Unfortunately, my issue, I'm autistic, high-functioning. I live alone and um, manage on my own. However, the justice system, being in the city, the justice system has made it clear, if there's a totem pole, that there is an eye and below an earwig. Um, The reason I say that is people can do whatever they want to me and get away with it, yes. What happened? I, I have had people harass me, for example, online harassment by somebody I know, and then there was phone harassment after the fact. With the online harassment, it was going on for years. The most recent was 2019. I quit various websites because of this person. I contacted the our police. 
and was told that nothing would be done unless my life was being threatened. As a result, I was very nasty to somebody that I personally know, but not as nasty as people have been to me. The last communication I had with this person was not, this was not person I had to call the police about. I just want to reiterate that. The last communication I had with this person was July 2020. I got charged in October 2021, and it destroyed me because the police have said, no, I went by what the police said, and then after the fact, there was a man in his 50s. I'm in my 30s. He got my number from an ex-mutual friend. Guess why that person's now an ex? He constantly harassed me, even called me right in front of the police, but it went right to voicemail. My cell phone was on, so the notification popped up. The police officer didn't even consider that. He only gave the man a warning. The man continued to two days later to harass me. He started up again, and the police officer came this time, said I was he was charged. Unfortunately, given that I'm in the court system myself, and I kept checking the court docket, Despite having a disability, I'm not stupid. <laughs> it's the unfortunate part. Let me ask you a question. So when you're talking about accommodations for people on the spectrum, whether it be in healthcare and or dealing with the police or inside the criminal justice system, what specifically are you talking about? Because we know, like, even grocery stores and places will have sensory overload options, uh, hours where people can shop to be, you know, spare some of the bright lights and some of the noises and what have you. So what is missing in either healthcare or the criminal justice? It's the criminal justice system, and it's fair treatment. I'm getting charged with things that people who do it to me get away with. The, 50, the man in the 50s, I had to fight to get him charged. He was not even given conditions to stay away from me. In the meantime, the, and he continued to harass me. I had to change my phone numbers. The police would not do a thing. In the meantime, I was given conditions to stay away from the man that I had supposedly harassed. And I had been ironically avoiding this particular person for making sure that he didn't work he, at the places that I would go to. Um, this meant the court allowed, did not give him any demand that I had to fight to be charged any conditions. And I found out in June of last year, they dropped the charges. My despite everything, my victim impact statement did not even get read out. So my point is, there is, in my case, no equal treatment. Maybe, I don't know, they have to pick somebody on the totem pole to be the scapegoat, and I'm it. I was chosen. I've gone through this in school. I've been bullied. Teachers would see it. They say this is a common issue. Well, it's pretty funny. If I do something, or if you lied, say I did or said something, even if I just said shut up, I'm punished. But you could beat the crap out of me, and it's fine. It's yeah, I'm not going to get into what kind of threats or yeah. stalking you were experiencing, but I remember stories not that low. Well, I don't know when it was. It was a number of years ago. It was a teenage boy walking down Topsail Road, I believe, and he's on the spectrum. And when encountered by the police, they thought he was high or drunk or what have yeah. you. And some of the poor treatment he received, consequently, there was a change in training at the RNC well, and understanding the spectrum. And that's not to say they've addressed issues that you've experienced, but, you know, the learning on the fly here, we don't have time to take a, an exorbitant amount of time to learn, 
to how to deal with people on the spectrum or, oh. or any other particular potential issue, whether it be mental health or otherwise. So I'm sorry to hear it happen to you like this. Uh, what, would you, what would be your summary message to both the healthcare system and criminal justice, what they should do to be better equipped? Well, I know it won't happen, but treat people equal. If somebody beats someone up, they, myself, then um, that person should be charged, not, oh, it's okay, they didn't mean it, whatever, which has happened. I have a scar from being beat up in 2011, and once again, it's fine. If that's the way it is, uh, and this sounds immature, you're gonna, and people are allowed to cry, get, away, get away with doing things to certain people that they wouldn't get away with, with others, the people that get away with it, they should be we they should be paid extra by the government. We should be paid extra because this is a service. I consider it a service. You could come down the street, beat me up for say whatever, from the cop even, it's okay. But if you did it to somebody else, you'd be in big trouble. So it's almost a good thing that the man got away did it to me because had it been anyone else, he would have been in trouble, gotten a record and everything instead of eh, it's okay. Yeah, equitable treatment should be the rule, regardless of what we're talking about, because yes. that's that is, in an essence, that's the essence of it, isn't it? You know, there's a difference between equality and equity, and you know, some people uh, split that hair, and I do because they're two different things with two different outcomes. Uh, I wish things had gone differently for you. I wish you good luck trying to get through this. Thank you, and I'm just going to add this. It really disappoints me that a physician-assisted suicide got postponed until next year because. People like myself, I especially am planning to apply. And it's just saying, we need you guys around. You don't matter. I know there's reasons they got to finesse everything with the provinces, but it honestly feels like that we're just got to suffer longer. I saw a post back in 2018 where someone said mental health doesn't seem to matter. Just keep suffering and pay the taxes. <laughs> That's what it's essentially about. Suffering is what needed, yeah, and it disgusts me. The way that medical assistance in dying is being used is not how it was, was intended, and we've got to figure that out. It can't be because you don't have the supports required, or you feel hopeless, or you feel like you're a burden, or you simply have a disability. You know, that is just not what the intention was, but unfortunately it's been utilized yeah. like that, and we've got to fix it immediately. Yes. Uh, caller, I'm off to the break. I wish you okay, well. well. Stay in I touch. I just want to let you know as well, if somebody who suffered since I was born, if you went through all I've gone through and had no support, you might feel the way I have felt. Until then... You need to walk in my shoes before you say anything. I'm sorry to be rude, but that's the fact. Thank you, caller. Oh, she dumped me pretty quick. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be saying good morning to the Clinical Chief of Cardiac Care with, with Eastern Health. That's Dr. Sean Connors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Clinical Chief of Cardiac Care with Eastern Health. That's Dr. Sean Connors. Dr. Connors, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I wanted to call and chat a little bit uh, about these flights that we've started for our cardiac patients in this province. I think there's been a little bit of confusion out there, and um, I was hoping that we would be able to chat and I could clear up some of those things. Sure. Let's start with some of the concerns that have been voiced on this show. Uh, one came from the NDP member for Lab West, Jordan Brown, saying that, you know, what we're doing is taking a nurse out of the system to be part of the travel plans, a 21-hour turnaround, he says that's creating an issue. So what are the exact circumstances regarding whatever healthcare professional would be accompanying a patient on the flight? 
Well, Perry, just to give you a little bit of quick background. Sure. Like, I've always felt that, that this group of patients, and they're the patients that we have in hospital. They've come in with a heart problem, and they're stabilized. And they're waiting as an inpatient, and they're waiting to come down. They're not safe enough to send home until we do their heart test, so they're waiting. So those are a group of patients that, that I've always felt, you know, they can be transported in an ambulance that doesn't have all the lights and sirens on. For example, if we have a patient at St. Clair's and we have to bring them to the health sciences for a test, that ambulance comes across town and it doesn't have sirens and lights. And, and, and these are stabilized patients that are inpatients. Yes, they can't take a cab and yes, they can't, you know, take their own car. They need to be in a monitored setting and they come over. So we started to think that maybe there was an innovative way to take our patients from Western Health or from Labrador down, get their tests done, and get them back the same day. Like, our air ambulance system, Patty, is a vital and precious resource with highly trained crews and pilots, and we need those people to transport our patients who are really sick. They're coming out of ICU. They're in the midst of having chest pain. They're having other complications. And it's not just cardiac care that needs an ambulance, an air ambulance like that. It's motor vehicle accidents, patients are not doing well, the tiniest of babies that need to come down, other complications, dialysis patients, and so on. So we were left with this group of cardiac patients that, we want, that were stabilized and they were inpatients. And we thought, wow, can we come up with an innovative way, a way of thinking outside the box where we can transport them down? And, Patty, let me tell you that one of the most precious resources in this hospital right now is a vacant bed. There are no vacant beds. So we thought maybe we could not only get the patients down with this dedicated flight, but we could do their procedures, not require a bed, therefore remove that obstacle for their care, and get them back home. So, so that was the innovative, out-of-the-box thinking that we've managed to do. We've, we've nicknamed this flight, Patty, Heart Force One. Um, it seems to have caught on. We've done it three times, Patty. We've delivered treatment to 25 patients, and we've been able to get about 80% of those patients back home the same day. Outside of the pilot, who's on the flight? So on the flight, so, so we engage deeply with our stakeholders, so with Lab Grenfell and with Western. And so we talk to them. We trust them. They, they, the nurses and the team that are looking after patients in those hospitals, members of that team will get on the flight with them. So there's continuity of care. That nurse may be looking after that patient for a week while they're waiting. The nurse gets on. But we leave that decision up to the health authority that's sending the patient. They know best. They know what staffing they have, they know what type of care that patient needs, and they come down. And when they go back, not only that, we add our own pit nurses to the flight when they go back, just to provide more education, to make sure the patients are okay, and to make it a very robust and educational uh, experience, not only for the patients, but for the nurses. I tell you, with the nurses that have come down these flights, Patty, they get to go into the operating room. They get to see what happens to their patients. And when they go back and we deliver those patients back to their loved ones, the nurses can tell the loved ones about the experience, what happened, what they saw. And the feedback that we've had from both the patients and the staff that's looking after the patients has been tremendously positive. Speak to uh, Jordan Brown's concerns, specifically up on LabWest. He says, pulling a nurse out of the system in the hospital that's already experiencing a shortage just further complicates the problem. We know that the patient being transported absolutely is thrilled to be able to get the care, fly in, fly out. But just speak to his specific concern about taking one nurse out of the rotation. So, so that nurse is actually looking after these patients now. When she comes, she's still looking after those same patients. So it's not as if she comes out of the rotation. We're taking patients out of their care, we're, we're giving them treatment, and we're bringing them back. 
And by doing that, the patient doesn't wait for a couple of weeks or three weeks for, to come out and get their test done. They wait much less time. So a bed is freed up. It takes stress off the system. It reduces the burden on the team that's working there. My goodness, if these beds are full of patients coming for their cardiac test, what happens to patients coming to the emergency room? They wait in the emergency room. The problem's compounded. So we think that the heart team, and we know across this country right now, our heart teams, our, 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 our healthcare teams are stressed. I mean, both from the emergency room to the wards to the operating room, surgical waitlist, and so on. This helps the system. It's not, you know, no solution is perfect. But it helps the system by freeing up beds, getting patients their treatment earlier, by, by engaging with the, the, our stakeholders, asking what they need and what they want. I am, to, I am absolutely positive that, that our directors, our managers, our nurses in these hospitals would not be putting their staff on a plane if they felt that they couldn't spare them. Continuity of care also includes post-procedure. How does that look for regions where they don't have a cardiac care team? So, so, Patty, good question. You know, if you were to come in and need a dye test, we would do your dye test, and 80% of the time you can go home the same day safely. That's a proven uh, standard of care across the country. So these, let's, let's take a patient waiting in Goose Bay. They've had a heart attack. They're waiting. We don't know what their heart looks like. It's not safe to send them home. Come down, get the test. We might prove that there's nothing to worry about. So we know that their risk is now low enough to fly back and to go home. So if we think that their risk is high enough, we'll keep them. We'll do whatever they need. We might even put a stent in and fix the blockage. Again, much lower risk than what they were while they were waiting up there. So, so we don't cut any corners. We bring them their treatment more quickly. And if they required other advanced cardiac care, heart care, we'd keep them here. I'm, I know this is not your ballywick, but I'm going to throw it out there for your thoughts. Back to when the discussion uh, surrounding the construction of the Cornerbrook Hospital, it was all about the CAT scanner. And, of course, some of the guidance coming from national bodies really didn't add up to needing a CAT scan uh, machine in Cornerbrook, but there was never a conversation about a cath lab. When we have so many people and the prevalence of heart-related disease in this uh, province, is there a need to expand catheterization services to other hospitals as opposed to simply at the health sciences? That's a great question, Patty. What, what we're always concerned about is delivering world-class cardiac care to the patients of this province. But let me tell you, and, and this question has surfaced over the decades, and from my point of view, they've gone through this review extensively in Nova Scotia, for example. All the cardiac catheterization labs are located in Halifax. They've gone through this conversation in New Brunswick. All the cardiac catheterization labs are located in St. John. And in Newfoundland, you know, we know that to have the critical mass of all the moving parts that you need, we would only be able to sustain that at one location, and that's here in St. John's. And let me tell you, it's not just the heart doctor who has catheters, these little kind of tubes like your spaghetti noodles, weave them into your heart and inject dye. We need, we need highly trained technicians with us to do those tests, x-ray technicians, hemodynamic technicians, perfusion technicians. We need cardiac surgery ORs because if we're in there trying to fix your heart and something goes awry and you need open heart surgery, we need that there. So to have all those pieces built around you is not just taking a picture with an x-ray machine, but to have the, the heart team. And the heart team goes from the cardiologist to the cardiac surgeons to the nurses to the technicians, perfusionists, and all that innovative cutting-edge equipment that we've been able to assemble and, and here in one place, you need to take advantage of that. So, 
So it's not that we wouldn't go somewhere else and build it, but we don't think we'd ever be able to give the patients the kind of care that they deserve. If we were to set up five cath labs around the province, we'd never be able to have cardiac surgery outside of this centre. Fair enough. You mentioned all the different disciplines as part of the cardiac team. I know in the recent past we've added a cardiac surgeon, but for the other technicians and cardiologists and or cardiac surgeons, do we have the numbers required to treat the people of the province that need the care? Patty, I'm really, cl- really proud of our, our, our teams here. Um, we do have enough. Um, we're doing well. The, at, attracting world-class people, you need to have great equipment and you need to have great facilities. And, and, I, and I think that, that we've been able to do that. We feel extremely well supported by both our healthcare foundation, by Asian Health, and by the government. Because it's not cheap, right, to, to get the best of equipment. But if you have a heart attack, you're worried about two things. One, can I get great treatment? And two, can I get it really fast? And so, so we've really prided ourselves on setting that, that kind of thing up here, and we do. So do we have enough? Right now we have three cardiac surgeons and this relationship with Ottawa where we have a senior cardiac surgeon that rotates down. We have a senior cardiac surgeon, one of the best in the world actually, with us right now uh, operating, Dr. David Gleaner. We've got, um, you know, we are challenged at times with some of the very highly specialized small groups of people. Um, we'd love to expand, but like, for example, perfusionists, they operate the heart-lung machine, Patty. There's a nat- national shortage of people with such highly trained skills. Now, we're lucky we have, we have some excellent people here on the ground. Uh, we'd like to hire more, um, but you know, it's always a challenge. Everybody's looking for them. So back to your point about why can't we why can't we put a cath lab somewhere else? Why can't we put it in Cornerbrook? We have challenges and struggles to maintain these highly trained subgroups. So we think that if we were trying to put two different groups across the island, it would be a challenge that would be insurmountable. You, might, uh, you mentioned the rotation from the uh, chief of, I think, cardiac care, you said, in Ottawa, where we have that relationship. Is it time to just have national standards? I know healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction, but with some of the hurdles for even uh, doing a locum, is it time to have the same licensing and accreditation procedures and protocols nationwide versus the, the splintered affair that we have today? Well, Patty, look, as chief here in the cardiac program, I'm constantly looking at people. We, we bring people in. We add them to our heart team. And there's no doubt that sometimes licensing is a significant hurdle. And I tell you, you know, when I look at patients, I look at surgeons that I'm bringing in, and sometimes their license is a challenge here, but yet we can send our patients out and they can operate on those same patients right. say in Ontario. It doesn't make sense. And I have to applaud the government in, as they look at kind of innovating those, the, you know, how we license people to, to make it more seamless. Like if that doctor's good enough to operate on you in Toronto, why can't he operate on you in St. John's? So I think we're getting there. I appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Connors. Thank you. Patty, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sean Connors, the Clinical Chief of Cardiac Care with Eastern Health. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number uh, two. Ruby, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, excuse me. I'm a first-time caller. <clears throat> But I would have loved to have spoken to Dr. Connors because my husband had a dye test done back in October and right away they wanted to put these catheters in. But his specialist here said the catheters were no good to him because he's a diabetic and he needed to have a triple bypass done. And... uh, this is hard for me. 
Um, we're waiting since October. We did receive a phone call, and it, they did ask us, would we go to Ottawa? Because he would be done quicker. We said, sure. We, Myself and my husband discussed it, and we said, sure, we'd go to Ottawa. So we called him back and told him, yes, we'd go to Ottawa and get this triple bypass done. And they said that we would have an appointment by the end of January or the first week of February. Now, that's come and gone. And I heard Dr. Connor say that they're bringing surgeons in. So where does my husband stand in this? Does, because we, I was just wondering if it was because we uh, accepted to go to Ottawa. Is he no longer on the list here in Newfoundland? I don't think that's the case, no. So if you had me craft a very specific question to Dr. Connors, it would simply be, where's your husband on the list? Yes, and um, we were talking to the specialist last week, and he told us it's going to be another couple of months. Now, when we, he had the dye test done back in October, they said if he stays here, it's going to take five to six months. So when we were talking to the specialist from Ottawa last week, he said it's going to probably take another month or two. So isn't that the same amount of time if we're waiting from October? Pretty much, yes. So why? Now, we also heard that the specialist who was going to do my husband in Ottawa was here last week. So why was my husband not contacted? Well, I can't answer that question, obviously, Ruby. I know. But I would imagine it's simply because the list is as long as it is. And I know that there's people out there sicker than my husband. And I know that. And I accept that. But somebody by now should be able to give us some kind of date. Now, they're after and send us all kinds of equipment. They are monitor monitoring him from Ottawa because we have a scale where they um, they keep track of his weight and his blood pressure and his diabetes and all that goes to Ottawa. When we do it here, that goes to Ottawa. And now starting last week, we're getting automated phone calls about him, asking him um, how he's feeling. But like there's they're just automated. We can't ask them questions or tell them when there's something different or if there's a change. Like, there is a change in him. He is more tired. And, you know, you can't just tell him that because it's automated. So we can't ask them any questions. They're just asking us questions. Yeah, I mean, which isn't getting any further down the road. Pardon me? Which isn't getting any further down the road to have a basic understanding of when you can anticipate. Because there's always going to be interruptions in surgery when it becomes emergencies, for instance. So yeah. when they are doing assessments on clinical acuity or in triaging patients, of course, someone with an emergency procedure required may indeed see someone bump, but it won't be for two months. It'll be till tomorrow or the next day or something close. So... I don't know how to answer your question, nor do I know if Dr. Connors would be able to respond with any concrete details surrounding when your husband or anyone else is going to be seen. But I'm sure the anxiety of the long wait isn't making matters any easier for you or your husband. No, it isn't. 
Now, I got to say he is a a kind of happy-go-lucky person and he'll take it day by day. But uh, isn't it, to me, isn't a triple bypass serious enough to bump him up a bit? Then someone who, I'm not saying his life is worth any more than someone else's, but, uh, like, if they could have put them... Um, catheters in him that day I don't know how to explain it Patty I really don't no, I, I know where you're coming from Ruby yeah so yeah. you know the severity of what your husband faces versus everybody else I have no earthly idea I know because you know it can be quite serious uh, when we talk about the numbers of blockages you know, there's people in there getting much more than a triple bypass uh, procedure done, I would imagine, yes. day in and day out. But, you know, fingers crossed that your husband's turn comes sooner than later. And what that means, I'm not sure. I know. But I would have just hoped to have liked to have asked Dr. Connors that because he's, he's talking about bringing the specialists in and they can do it here just as well as they can do it up in Ottawa and or, or Ontario or wherever. Uh, you know, it's just frustrating, and it's just hard waiting. And like, Abby's afraid to leave the house. Afraid I miss a phone call. Right. Right. Yeah. He, you know, he still has to go to work. He's still working. That's stressful on me because of the work type of work that he does. Um, you know, it's just. It just don't seem fair to me somehow. And look, there's no shame in feeling a little bit selfish when you're trying to get care for yourself or someone you love. I mean, it's human nature. It absolutely is. So wondering yeah. aloud where you are on the priority list is a fair question. Not one I yeah. can answer. I'm not even sure Dr. Connors could answer it without having all the pertinent information in front of him. But look, I hope this happens as soon as possible, Ruby, and hopefully it's a, a huge success. Thanks for calling this morning. I wish you and your, your husband well. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number six. Loretta, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, hi there. Hi. Uh, listen, that went three bays. Do you have to make a certain amount to get that? Because I applied for it, and I was $200 over. Yeah, there is a threshold for And this is the one-time $500 for those who fit the eligibility bill. If I remember correctly, 2021 net family income for a family was $35,000 or less. For individuals, it was $20,000 or less. Oh, okay. I thought everybody was entitled to it. Yeah, no, just people that fall into that income category, categories. Okay, okay thank you, and you have a good day. You too, Loretta. Okay, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Rosalind had no problem cashing her deceased husband's check. We'll hear how that went for her, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Canadian Hydroponic Association. That's Mackenzie Warford. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good to talk to you again. Welcome back to the program. So I remember or recall reading an email from you. There was a story you had read, something about there is support for hydroponic farming out there, and you wanted to make a rebuttal. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, this is not criticizing the government or anything like that. This is strictly strategic. And um, when we look at a $700,000 investment from the government, I applaud that. That's great that they 
took that uh, that amount and they invested in sustainable growing practices. But we got to look at the definition of little. Little is the extent or duration, which means brief. It's small in size, small in quantity. When I said there is little in, in way of government support, that's exactly what I meant. The extent of the programs are little. The size of the money is little. And uh, the qu- the quantity of the programs available is little. Describe so what the programs are. So is this seed money capital to get started, or is it training for how to manage equipment? So what are the programs? So currently, if you go into AgPal, which is the website the government has suggested you use to find these programs available to you, if you type in hydroponics, you don't get anything, right? So that's very little, in my opinion, of of support for hydroponics there's there's nothing specific to hydroponics and that's that's what we're trying to get at right there's nothing that uh does any of the things you suggested there's nothing in uh, in regards to research or innovation uh nothing in regards to the equipment we're using there's no support in that regard right and i would we wouldn't have founded this association if there was right associations aren't formed because there's an abundance of support Associations are formed when there's a group of people who realize that they're not getting the support that they need, so they join together. And, Patty, I've talked to Canadians all across, uh, growers all across Canada, and they're all ringing the same bell. I'm not making this stuff up, right? So, I mean, when I say that there's little in terms of support, I mean that there is uh, there's a little duration, there's, there's brief support, there's small in size support, there's small in quantity support. That's what I mean. I'm not... I'm not trying to segregate government. I want to work with the government. In fact, they're passing legislation or trying to federally and a 30% reduction in fertilizer. And we've taken it upon ourselves as an association to reach out to a natural fish fertilizer company here in Newfoundland and develop our own fertilizer, which, uh, you know, helps the environment and cuts down on the cost of delivering fertilizer. So, you know, we're all about working with the government and, you know, uh, creating those bridges to get over those boundaries and mitigate those boundaries. Uh, but when we think about it, $700,000 in compared to one second, I got to make sure I get this number right. I'm not, I don't, uh, I don't feed lies on this report released January 11th from Saskatchewan government, governments of Canada and Saskatchewan invest $17.6 million in crop research. So in terms of little, seven hundred thousand is 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 little. You know what I mean? It's it's not. I'm not lying. It's what it is. And and you know, I need government to see that and to work with us on that because we can get to a point where this island is sustainable. The last census that I looked at showed Newfoundland producing ten percent of what it consumes. That was as of 2015. I haven't seen anything. Yeah, else that number's then, tricky. That that one is a really tricky one to understand in full. I believe. Well, for starters, it doesn't encapsulate every bit of food that's grown. I think that's more on the big retail side. We import 90% of what is sold at the retail level. It does not take in, for instance, your operation or Scott and Aries down in the Cove or any homesteading or any backyard farming or any community garden. So it's a little bit of a misleading number, but we're still really lacking on that front when it comes to food production. Absolutely. And so this is another another reason of the association is members – who join are, are uh, required to record the produce that they're growing so we can actually show government, look, this is how much hydroponics is growing in Canada. This is how much we're producing. This is how much revenue we're generating. 
there's nobody recording this information. And so how can you go and get adequate funding when you don't realize exactly how much uh, capital is being gained from the operation? Now, uh, independent operators know, but Canada doesn't know as a whole because there's nobody doing that. So, you know, like I said, this is why we're, we're forming this association to bring awareness on exactly how much hydroponic produce is in Canada, who's producing it, uh, they're doing it safely. And, you know, it's, you know, I don't see any... I don't see why there should be any barriers between this association and the government. We don't. We're not there to criticize. We're, like I said, we applaud the government for investing their seven hundred thousand dollars, but we see it as little in comparison to what the government is actually investing in in crop research and, and agriculture. So, um, you know, if if the we have sent a letter to the premier and we have sent a, we cc the agricultural minister on it, and you know we never got a response from our letter. We got a response to a media uh, advertisement we done trying to get membership and rally members. And, you know, everything I was preaching in our, our first call is all true, Patty. And it's all what I'm hearing from Canadian growers. So in, in order to encourage membership, I'm going to run with what people are giving me. And yeah. it, it continues to build membership. I have people contacting me every day. So, it's you know, like I said, I'm not lying. Yeah, but has anyone said I'm you are lying? lying? Uh, well, I mean, the fact that he refutes the fact that I said there's little, that's thats my—that's the truth. There is little support. That's not a lie, right? Yeah, and I guess that, you know, would get down to the subjectives at that point. Uh, Mackenzie, how many members do you have, and where are they? Uh, right now we've got our last meeting. We had 16 members everywhere from Calgary, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and uh we're, we're steadily building our executive, and I'm happy to say that Sydney Rice of uh, Succeed has just joined as the provincial director for Newfoundland. So, you know, we're, we're, we're really steadily climbing. And uh, like I said, I keep hearing the same things uh, from our members in regards to what the issue is. And we have members who don't have systems yet. They have a beautiful – I've got two members. I can't disclose their names. But they've got a beautiful business plan put together, and what they said was, you know, in the business plan, they included agricultural funding for federal and provincial, and the next step was to go to an institution and get that funding. And they've been—they've told me that they've been laughed out of the banks by a couple institutions when it comes to hydroponics because it's a risky field, and they don't feel that they're actually going to end up getting the funding that the government uh, has in place because it's not specific to hydroponics. So, I mean, um, what can we do for these people but work with government and give them uh, uh, support as a, an association with the, uh, the expanse, uh, uh, expansive knowledge we have on hydroponics and guarantee their success when they start so they're less risky to investors, right? So that's all we can do. And, and if the government can see, you know, we just need to upgrade the infrastructure. I'm not saying they're not supporting enough. It, it, it In my opinion, it is little, right, in that regard. But, you know... We can we can really make a difference here on this island, and I and my growers know it. Every member that I have here on this island knows it, and we just need to you know create that nice paved road now for us to to travel down and and get the funding we deserve. Uh, not not the association, not me, but the members. All the members deserve what they're entitled to, and you know the people that are working in the field, they're doing a darn good job. They're doing their best for their communities. They have great ideas. We just need the government to get on board and have a look. I appreciate the time this morning, Mackenzie. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
It's McKinsey Warfare. He's the president of the newly formed Canadian Hydroponic Association. It's time for the news. When we come back, appreciate your patience there, Rosalind. And there's another caller who wants to talk about dental care. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly before we get to the line. So we spoke with uh, Grand Falls Windsor Mayor Barry Manuel earlier about a meeting coming up. Uh, it's this evening in his community, and that's regarding the future of health care. Here's the message. Pre-registered attendees need to arrive in time to be seated by 6.45 p.m. this evening. Anyone who is not pre-registered may be able to attend after 6.45, but they cannot guarantee you a seat. Pre-registration for this event is now closed, but if you have pre-registered and you're now unable to attend, please let them know by calling 489-0450. So call 489-0450. Let's go to line number two. Rosalind, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. Hi. I'm calling concerned those $500 checks that were sent out. Right. I got my husband's check. He passed away six months ago. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, thank you. I never had a bit of trouble. I took it to the bank uh, that we both dealt with uh, while he, when he was alive, and I brought my check and his check up together, and they cashed them for me with no problem. Yeah, I mean, I've heard many times that so many people did indeed have no issues with cashing their deceased loved one's check. You know, the suggestion was, don't go to the teller, just put it in your account. And let the chips fall where they may, but I don't know what the right thing is to do here. I went to the teller, and I brought along my husband's death certificate, and she took a copy of this, and she put the two checks into my account, and she gave me back the money I wanted. Yeah, so you were able to cover the 500 in the account because there is a hold on the government checks, which some people were experiencing problems initially. So I'm glad it worked out for you, and hopefully we can figure out a way for it to work for Jack as well. And now, according to Jack, he's paying off his wife's funeral. Is it a possibility he could take that check to the funeral home and then accept it as payment and it, put it into their account? It's an excellent question, and someone says uh, has recommended that too, and we did call him with that suggestion, so hopefully that can get him some help too. Okay, Patty. I enjoy your show every day. I must say it's a comfort to have to listen to people. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for calling today. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye, Rosalind. Yeah, so we did call Jack with that suggestion that maybe the funeral home will take it as a form of payment against the funeral expenses. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Um, Patty, I'm... Calling him today about uh, the dental plant. Is that me? Yep. Uh, okay. My sister asked me to call also for to let her know. Uh, I've heard back in twenty one that's supposed to continue on twenty two with children, twenty three maybe with seniors. Uh, do you have any information on that? Yeah, inside uh, the dental services program, the dental health plan, which of course at the Department of Health and Community Services. There are special assistance programs. There are benefits for low-income seniors. So does she fall into the low-income senior benefit? Well, her and her husband are getting pensions on um, just just me, right? Okay. So there is folks who are receiving an income supplement uh, can be eligible for the seniors' benefit, and that is, that is also associated with uh, dental care, as far as I know. So if they meet the threshold, 
they should indeed be able to find that support. Yeah. Okay. So the right thing to do is if you just do you use the computer by chance? No. Okay. If someone belongs to you or a friend of yours, if you simply go to uh, just Google up Dental Care for Seniors NL, you'll go right to the, the bulk page. There's going to be a drop-down menu, but one of the things that's quite clear there is seniors. So you just put the cursor against seniors, and it'll, it'll show you the special assistance program and a couple of others, but it also will talk about low-income uh, low income seniors and a benefit for them. So do that much to see if you qualify. And there's all the contact information there as well. It should be fairly easy to navigate. Yeah, uh, I could get a little bit of help at the library because I just go down there sometimes, but I don't, you know. Yeah, that'll be a good spot to get the help. So it's really simple. Just go to Google and say Dental Care for Seniors NL. You'll go right to the uh, you'll go right to that page, and then there's a drop down for seniors, and you should be able to find the information, no problem. And if you do have a problem, you let me know, and I'll send you something. Okay, thank you. No problem at all. Yeah, bye. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> this is for the folks out in Grand Falls, Windsor, once again. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, now, the subject line they sent me was, uh, it's made reference to February 7th, but the forum out there is tomorrow night, the 8th, for the healthcare, the future of healthcare meeting in Grand Falls, Windsor. So it's tomorrow night at 8th. And the same message stands for those who have been pre-registered. And if you are pre-registered and unable to attend, please do indeed call that number. And I'll give you the number one more time. Sure, I'll, why wouldn't I? 489-0450. Let's roll. Line number one, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Daly, yeah. I'm first-time caller. Welcome. Okay. I want to know where I stand at. Can I be put out of my house by anybody? I'm not sure 100% what that means. So who's trying to pull you out of your house? Uh, my nephew. And f to what end? Well, where's the... Because count up, he, was, he said he was talking to my children. I can only... Get hold to four, and the other one, the other one won't give me no answers, and I don't know where I stand. This all come over that they want to put me into a senior's home, and I'm not going until I have to go and right now I haven't got to go and they're pushing me to a guy's son that I lived with this guy for five and a half years. This guy passed away. Now they're pushing me to this guy to do everything for me. This young fella He's working, and I mean, I'm not going to stop he from working. And I grew up, I never had no fighting, no did not, no dis disturbance with nobody. Okay. And, and my father, he got 
one come, supposing you come and ask for money, and you said, lend me so much money, and I'm paying you back on Friday, and if, if he had it, you had it. But if you never bought the money back, you could come to him every day, and he would not ask you where it's to. I do not like fighting. And I do, if someone asks me to do anything, yep, I do it. I'm after asking, asking, uh, that's been on, uh, it's been on Facebook, uh, trying to get the roof patched in my house. I was called a liar. I didn't do it. I want to what my, what my family tells me. I will not listen. The problem is mine. The problem is not mine. And okay. uh, the problem is I'm, uh, I can't get no one to uh, fix the, the roof. I asked one person in particular, and he told me that he'd, pay, he'd do, do it for $600. I'm not satisfied to pay $600, and I would just stop in the basement to fix it. Okay. I'm not sure about the bill that you're facing. But the, if I remember correctly, your initial concern was that someone belonged to you is trying to force you out of your home. That's right. Okay. It, they said I want to fix the house. The, the house is falling down in under my ears, and that is a darn lie. Okay. Well, I mean, if it's not true and the house is safe enough for you to live in comfortably and healthy, then so be it. That's uh, that's a decision that you'll have to make. But who has the ability to force you to do something is a very difficult question. You know, I guess you'd have to get some legal advice, but unless they pick you up uh, a bag of bones and put you in the car and dump you at a personal care home, they can't they physically force you. With me. No, of course, and nor, nor should they. No. So unless they try to do something as egregious as that, then what you've got is basically an argument on your hands versus someone's going to actually deposit you at the closest care home. So hopefully that's not what happens. Well, this house was paid for when my husband got his OAS when he was 65. Okay. And he not stopped paying for it when he passed away. Eight years ago and then I had to go and seek help to get it paid paid for until I got my spouse allowance and when I got my spouse allowance I paid for the house two years so the house is paid for Pardon? the house is paid for you own it free and clear yes because I got the papers there that I had sent me with my husband and my name on it. Okay. 
Well, that's good. It's always nice to own your own home with no mortgage payment going to the bank. So I wish you well, and hopefully this just ends with a reasonable conversation about whether or not there's some work that needs to be done to keep you safe and keep the house dry, whether it be on the roof or anywhere else. So let me know what happens, if anything happens. But what but are what? you supposed to do? To do if the friend comes in the in the yard and he knows nothing about pets and that you're supposed to take and body and bones pouring up on the roof and making pets yet? No, um, so I'm not a hundred percent sure I understand that question. So who's the person coming in the yard? Your nephew? Well, no one comes here. Okay. Well, then. That the man that I was with, with for five and a half years, people didn't like him. Okay. Which shouldn't be neither here nor there, whether or not someone likes someone, if we're talking about a roof that does well, or does not. I mean, he was good to me. Well, that's all that counts. He could for me. Okay. And I looked after he when he got sick like I did with my husband. Okay. And I <laughs> like for the young fella to mind his own business. Yeah, well, let's make that the final message. Buddy should mind his own business. It's a good message to put out there. And I, w- I wish you well, and I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the call. You're welcome. Thank Take care. You. You're welcome. Good luck. Yeah, that's always a reasonable position. And I tell you what, that's come by the wayside in a lot of conversations, the mind-your-own-business stuff. Uh, anyway, big thanks to the fellow who went down and cleared out Michelle's ramp. That happened today. So we're always appreciative when people respond when the calls come in like that. So anyway, uh, Dave, we got one in the queue for after the break. Maybe that'll happen during this commercial break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we were hoping to get a few leaks or a bit of inkling as to what's going on on two fronts. Whether it be the fact that at 9.30 this morning, the uh, negotiations or the talks between Memorial University's administration and the Faculty Association, whether or not they were making any headway, we haven't heard that they've reached another impasse. They both seem to be in the same room. So I guess that's as good as we can hope for today. Now, what a solution looks like, I don't know. Someone accused me via email of uh, exaggerating the negotiation of something that's in principle. Uh, So be it, but I'm going to stick with it. You know, if you're trying to negotiate how much money I get paid, how many days I get for sick days, how many vacation days I get, what my benefits package looks like, pension and otherwise, those are hard and fast. We can negotiate those right down to the dollars and cents. When you're talking about things in principle, that may take a certain amount of time to be satisfied, like, for instance, a full-on reform of the Board of Regents, My question is just how exactly does that work and what would be acceptable for time frames or definitions over the short, medium, and long term because that becomes a little more tricky because then we're talking about gray areas and some vagaries. Also, was really hoping to get some sort of leak coming out from the Premier's meeting with the Prime Minister today. And, of course, this is all about health care. Number one on the agenda, like it's always has been, would be the amount of Canada health transfer dollars. At this moment in time, the federal contribution is about 22% of provincial overall cost. The premiers are united on this front. They want to see that increase to 35%, which is a significant increase. Secondly is as to whether or not the provinces will accept any conditions being stipulated associated with an increase in funding, if indeed that's what's coming. We don't have a dollar amount. There's been... 
commentary coming from the PMO and other senior members of government that there is going to be some additional monies on the table, that there will indeed be something in the form of a 10-year plan regarding funding that will be part of it. It's hard to imagine that it won't come with some conditions. You know, all the provinces will probably take a very different stance on this. Some will be politically motivated, some will be grandstanding, and some will be, pardon me, will be real. In this province, the last time we negotiated a bilateral arrangement with the federal government on health care transfer dollars, it did come with some earmarks. It was to be spent on long-term care and on mental health care. So, and two good ones. Two good ones where we have distinct shortcomings. But the point that people are making here about just more money, I think is fair. More money doesn't necessarily solve anything. Because if more money just becomes part of the bidding process to attract one healthcare worker all the way from a doctor through the various disciplines, then are we really getting any further ahead? You know, simply just up in the bidding process isn't necessarily in anyone's best interest, except for those who are now going to receive much more money for compensation for duties performed. So there are the moving parts that I'm not really sure we've got it figured out. We did put this question to Dr. Sean Connors when we had him on the show a little while back and he's the clinical uh, chief of cardiac care in Eastern Health, is, you know, whether or not there needs to be some more federal guidance. Not to usurp the province's authority, because healthcare is absolutely a provincial jurisdiction, but whether or not we need some federal approach to leading the conversation with things like provincial borders regarding licensing and accreditation. And Dr. Connors made the point, and he's right. Let's say, for instance, we send a patient up to the cardiac team in Ontario, in Ottawa, where we have a formalized relationship, that surgeon can do the procedure on a resident of this province, but might not be as easy to come to this province to do the exact same surgery. I don't think that's the be-all and end-all, but it's just one step forward to a bit more nationalized standards of care, nationalized standards of how you get licensed, what qualifies as appropriate education and training, and yes, evaluation to make sure that you're up to snuff. It's the same conversation people associate with recruiting healthcare professionals from other parts of the world. And you know, as much as I do, that we've been doing it. Whether it be trying to attract registered nurses in, in India, they say they have very similar nursing training in that part of the world. Certainly we know there's absolutely an overlap with the type of training being afforded to healthcare professionals, doctors specifically in Ireland, which we've set up shop. We did a six-day tour to four different cities in Ireland. The only issue with that is that I don't think we've ever really found out exactly whether or not I'm successful. And it's hard to measure success when you don't have a number associated with it, like 10 doctors or 30 nurses or whatever the case may be. Last check-in on the Twitter box for the morning. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Comments are welcomed. Our email address is openline at vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.